Today's reading is from the book of Jude, which you can find in your church Bibles on page 1,231. That's page 1,231, Jude, uh, verse 8 to 19. In the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them! They They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest squam, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Now we're in the second week of a sort of three-week mini-series on the letter of Jude. Jude, who was most likely one of Jesus' half-brothers. And today we're looking at troublemakers in the Christian church something the Christian church has never been able to get away from. Last week we looked at the distorted message that the church wreckers were um, promulgating. We saw they, they had an irreverence for God. They were far too familiar, too flippant about divine things, very complacent. They had an intellectual pride which led them to think that uh, they knew better than the apostolic teaching that they somehow thought they could know God without going through the teaching of the apostles. They, as Jude says, verse 3, no longer held to the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. You see, God had revealed his mind through the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. But these false teachers had, uh, were 
really slipped into the church and they rejected that method of accessing God. They thought they knew better. And as usual, along with 40 thinking goes 40 behaviour. They rejected the authority of Christ, not only in their thinking, but in the way in which they lived. And they followed, we read, verse 4, immoral ways. But as he's done before, Jude reminds them that God will punish them. Now Jude, we read, uh, would sooner have written about salvation. That is more important and more profitable But the urgency of the situation in this church that he's writing to, which quite obviously has a Jewish background rather than a Gentile one, um, because of the urgency of the situation, he's compelled to write against the false teachers and their consequent troublemaking. Now, at the day when the, um, the winner of the Premier League will be sealed... It's interesting to kind of um, bring out the parallel between football and this letter of Jude, which might not seem immediately obvious to you. But um, if you think about it, um, Jude wants to give, if you like, the positive message. But he has to be, in this case, defensive. He has to tell them what to avoid. It's rather like... um, the Liverpool match earlier in the week, you know, where they did win. But if they'd let in one goal and even won the game 4-1, they would have lost. You see, attacking football is very attractive and you can only win if you score goals. But defensive football is absolutely vital. If you let them in, you lose. And that's what he's concentrating on here. He's concentrating on the defensive. Next week, at the end of his... Well, no, a week after, rather. At the end of his letter, he's concentrating on the attack. The way in which we, in cooperation with God, as we persevere in the Christian life, God has promised to preserve us in it until we get to the end of our day and we are securely with him in heaven forever. So this week it's a bit defensive. Next week, next time it's on the attack. This week we're looking at these troublemakers. Verse 8. In the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority and slander celestial beings. Jude calls them dreamers because their sense of discovering what the truth is and knowing what to do um, comes from the world of their own thoughts. They have rejected the external authority of God through his prophets and apostles. They're into the if-it-feels-good-do-it philosophy, which has always been around in any era. It just gets repackaged from time to time. And notice they are said to pollute their own bodies. It's very true that certain behaviours produce ill health, just as smoking can damage your lungs, so promiscuous behaviour can leave you with infections which are equally fatal. But there are also mental scars from not living the way in which God intended us to live. They may be not quite so easily quantifiable, but they are still nonetheless real. The troubled actress Jill Gascoigne once said, when I was young I was promiscuous 
and deeply regret it. Now, why do people follow their own feelings rather than God's laws? Why do they do their own thing? Well, verse 8 tells us it's because they have rejected authority. And in the context of the letter, that is the authority of Jude's half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Reject the authority of Christ as the eternal God-given authority, and what are we left with? Well, Jerem Bars very helpfully outlines the alternatives to living by God's authority. The individual can decide right and wrong. Or the majority, the 51%, can decide right and wrong. A small elite can decide right and wrong. A dictator can decide right and wrong. Or an ideology can dictate right and wrong. The French newspaper Le Figaro reckoned that 137 million people were killed as a consequence of communist ideology. You think of Stalin and Mao Zedong and Pol Pot and others. So, autocracy, democracy, oligarchy and monarchy in its various forms are the alternative. Most people really have to experience personally trying to live with one of those as their overriding uh, source of authority, or to have visited places and seen the consequences. I can remember whilst I was filling some time between theological college and um, being ordained, travelling out to the Far East, and I went into Kampuchea, as it was called, Cambodia, but by the back door, Um, because the Khmer Rouge was still in operation. And the camp that I was in did come under attack. People were killed. I remember talking to some of the refugees who were back in across the border in Thailand. I remember meeting one lad who was a good artist, and I bought two paintings off of him. One of them is a very idyllic scene in Kampuchea in the paddy fields. It's all bright and yellow and orange. And the other one is in the same paddy fields, but it's dark and people are being hacked to death with the same tools that they cultivated the rice. Awful. But some people can see the logic of their own position and yet seem powerless to do nothing about it. Polly Toynbee, writing in The Guardian, it was about 20 years ago, I checked the other day, And um, she wrote about her disgust of paedophilia, sexual behaviour between adults and children. And while she found it disgusting, she was very honest and and admitted that based on her own liberal philosophy, that liberals like her had no way of saying that it was wrong. And she suspected to her own shock that possibly a few years down the line, she said in the Article 5, that her liberal-minded friends may have come to find it acceptable. Well, I'm sure today, not that I have any way of asking her, that she's grateful that her prediction was wrong so far. But that's what can happen if you reject the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and follow your own dreams and do whatever takes your fancy. 
Well, let's look at the rest of the passage at a faster pace. The slandering of celestial beings is an interesting verse. Verse 9, what are we to make of that? And this is where he um, gives the example of the archangel Michael. Now, he's quoting here from a book called The Assumption of Moses, and from later in, as as we'll see, he quotes from another Jewish writing called The Book of Enoch. Both of these were Jewish writings written around about 1000 BC. Now, the fact that he's actually quoting from them, that he's citing them, doesn't mean to say that he thinks that they're divinely inspired like the Old Testament or the writings of the apostles. It doesn't mean that he thinks that they're necessarily true. But he knows that they are familiar with these books and he is merely saying that the bit he's focusing on concurs with Christian thought and therefore he's endorsing it. So what we have here is that the archangel Michael goes to bury Moses' body but the devil claims the body because it's his by right. After all, Moses sinned. He's not... um, the, the devil has won. In quoting this, Jude's not suggesting that the book is either true or inspired, but what he's doing is saying that this story, that in this story, Michael did not dismiss the devil as if he were powerless. He didn't despise the forces of evil, and so neither should his readers and listeners. The thought is that these deviant Christians thought they were so much in God's favour that the forces of evil could not lure them away. But as Field Marshal Montgomery of El Alamein said, the first rule of warfare is to know your enemy. If you're not sure he exists or you underestimate his power, you lay yourself wide open for attack. Now, not for a moment do we... Or should we see little red demons behind everything? And most of us are not likely to make that mistake. But the forces of evil are at work, usually in very subtle ways. We're not to write them off yet. But that's what these false teachers did, verse 10. These men speak abusively against what they do not understand, the forces of evil, and what they and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. The Apostle Paul, at about the same time, observed, professing themselves wise, they became as fools. And many today will write off Christianity. They'll try and say that it is um, unreasonable, and so ditch it. And they pursue what um, they consider to be reasonable. And in a nutshell, what is that? Well, it is nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt to justify their behaviour, which is at variance with God's design for us. And where does it lead them? They are destroyed by it. If you ever hear some Christian teaching that really, you know, your, um, your intuition just says, nah, I don't think that's quite right, but you can't quite put your finger on what actually is wrong. Where has the person speaking gone wrong? And an examination of their lifestyle, the lifestyle of the, the advocate, is usually a fairly good auxiliary guide. 
So at the end of this first paragraph, we have been reminded of the spiritual decadence of the false teachers, their intellectual arrogance and their physical immorality. And in response, we should check our own moral integrity, our own intellectual humility and our spiritual sensitivity. As Michael Green in his excellent commentary says, progressive thinking and progressive morality often go hand in hand with progressive deafness to the voice of God. May we not make that mistake. And in verse 11, Jude gives three well-known Old Testament examples that illustrate what the false teachers were like. Cain, who is the first murderer, he was a cynical materialist who defied God and despised his brother Abel, who he then killed. Balaam, who was just greedy for money, he involved Israel in immorality by saying they could sin with impunity because they were so in with God, being God's people. And then Korah, who was the one who rebelled against God's appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. So these false teachers that Jude has in his sights rejected the authority of the apostles and they followed their own special knowledge, as they were to call it. They thought it was the spiritual aspect of us alone that mattered, rather than the fact that we are, if you like, also a physical, material body. So for them... What happened in the spiritual was what mattered. What you did with the body didn't matter. And because being in the know was what mattered, they despised those who they considered not to be in the know. And they were called Gnostics. It's it's the word, the Greek word for knowledge. So agnostic means no knowledge or ignorant And they, because they thought they had the knowledge that they thought they had, which they acquired by the sharing of secret information, which they had somehow, well, dreamt up really. And they had this elaborate scheme between us on earth and the spiritual up there. And there are various levels of knowledge to kind of get through in order to kind of connect with all that. Yeah, it's kind of implausible nonsense, really. But uh, anyway, the people who possess that, when faced with the people who swallow it, become quite powerful. But what effectively they were doing was bypassing God's revelation through the prophets and apostles. And some writers wonder whether there are parts of the Christian church today where that is also a resurgent feature bypassing the Bible with your supposed direct revelation. Well, so destructive were these false teachers and uh, such wreckers of the church that Jude now condemns their recklessness in very graphic terms. Jude really thought that they were bad news. Verse 12, blemishes at your love feasts eating with you without the slightest qualm. In the early days of the church, communion took place in the context of a much larger meal, a feast, a banquet, a big dinner party, a big reception. 
Uh, perhaps the nearest we come to, and we're still quite a long way from it, is a Maundy Thursday supper where we gather, share food together, and then break bread and remember the Lord's death for us. But now imagine that you were to add to that the worst excesses of a teenage party. It is quite obvious I have not recently been to a teenage party, and I don't really know quite what they necessarily get up to today. But I can tell you about the one I went to um, when I was um, in my mid-teens. I was invited by the blokes who were in the same football team as me, and, it has, and I, I went once, and I, uh, my observation was that was first of all a mad grab for food and drink, um, then maybe there were some drugs around, and then the objective was to see who you could get off with and how far you could get. And that seemed to be the order of their priorities at this party. But I realised very quickly, I felt very uncomfortable, that I neither should nor could, in fact, be there. So I didn't go anymore. I should add that they were all 14 and 15-year-olds, and it was 1968 when kind of, you know, hippies and flower power and other such stuff was uh, around. Now, the word blemish means literally sunken rocks. So the picture's quite a vivid one. You sail along to your agape meal which is one of the Greek words for love, um, as they called it, the agape, and uh, only to discover that your life has been shipwrecked, that you have been lured onto the rocks of immorality by those you thought were Christians too. And look further how they are described. Shepherds who only feed themselves instead of the flock. Clouds with no rain, useless. They bring no good in themselves and serve simply to block out the life-giving sun. Autumn trees without fruit uprooted and so twice dead. Dead because they bear no fruit and then because they have been dug up and burnt. So Jude half-brother of Jesus, thinks these false teachers are both useless and deadly. And then he adds two more pictures from the sea and the sky. Verse 13, they are wild waves at the sea, foaming up in their shame. They say that there's no rest for the wicked. That's very true. Conscience does disturb those who do evil. And to their shame, it's like the filthy foam that you see on the seashores and gets deposited with the high tide. And finally, they're described as wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Again, the idea of something unnatural happening for which the end is oblivion. Michael Green again. In these two verses, Jude has evoked a swift bold picture of the men he is castigating. They are as dangerous as the sunken rocks, as selfish as perverted shepherds, as useless as rainless clouds, as dead as barren trees, as dirty as the foaming sea, and as certain of doom as the fallen angels. 
It's not surprising then to read the judgment of God on such men. And again, he's quoting from a Jewish writing of the first century BC, the book of Enoch. Enoch was one of two people in the Old Testament. The other one you'll know was Elijah. Neither of them saw death. They were just beamed up to heaven, direct. And the writer of the book gives, uh, gives the name Enoch because Enoch was one of them. But what Jude is quoting, maybe from, a, if you like, an uninspired or authorised source, nonetheless concurs with Christian thought. And this is what uh, comes in the, the book of Enoch. See, the Lord is coming with thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then there are three examples um, of the acts and words. The acts are condemned and there are a whole list of evil desires. The words, though, are divided here that he uses in, um, in his letter into pairs, grumblers and fault finders, boasters of self and flatterers for their own advantage. Think for a moment that words are as bad as actions in God's mind because it is our attitude that reveals our true self. Now the church is a voluntary body and so it depends for a high degree on cooperation. Now people may expect the church to be perfect but given that we're all imperfect that's a little bit unreasonable. So it's not fair to actually grumble or to fault find in those who are really trying to do their best. Now sadly every church will have them, maybe only a few, thank God. But I wouldn't want to be in their shoes in the light of what Jude writes. And then there are the smoothies, who are also in for it too. (coughs) I remember going on a course once, there was a sort of time management sort of course, you know, And I was taught the need to give strokes. So you're to put strokes in your, and then it was a time manager, but today it might be Evernote or Outlook or whatever you use to kind of manage your time. And you're to record your need to stroke X or Y. So remember to stroke your wife or your staff. Now obviously I'm not talking literally here, um, at least not to the staff, but maybe to the wife. But... um, that uh, it means to pay them a compliment. When I told Cathy about what I'd learnt, she immediately and unsurprisingly put an immediate objection to this as such a calculating activity as to be completely insincere and quite right too, and I don't do it. Now, I dare say you can spot, though, these kind of smoothies at work who go around sort of smiling at you and saying making very sort of affirming sort of gestures. Oh, you look so well, and oh, that's lovely, and uh, I'm pleased with your performance, and you sort of, you know, if you swallow this, you know, you sort of, you know, makes you feel better. And then, of course, you discover they do it to everybody. It's a whole butter-up technique. It's not genuine at all. It's completely phony. What they're trying to do is to ingratiate themselves with you so that you'll then speak nicely about them in the kind of, you know, the general kind of uh, life of the organisation that you're in. And then somebody who has the power of appointment 
sort of sort of by about five sort of uh, sort of um, stages of communication whereby sort of truth is kind of lost along the way thinks this person is um, just the right sort but of course that's the whole um, objective isn't it they, they, they do this ingratiating to support their upward career trajectory and they're not difficult to spot now are you surprised when you hear about these troublemakers are you surprised that you would find them in the Christian church today the church of the first century so close to the life of Jesus on earth but also in the church 2000 years after he was on earth well we shouldn't be Because the Apostle Jude says, they have warned us, verse 18, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Jude, not surprisingly, is right. And sad to say, there are people in the church today who scoff and make fun of orthodoxy. They laugh at the views that the apostles had, that the Lord Jesus had, and that the prophets in the Old Testament had. And they are obviously divisive. And while we get on with sharing the positive message of salvation, we must be aware of their existence and avoid being seduced by them. Well, next week we do, next time we do have the really positive message of how in cooperation with God, we will survive and get to heaven as we persevere while he promises to preserve us en route. And being defensive is part of that preservation. Let us pray. A prayer that comes at the end of Jude's letter that is apt for us. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.